I do think today's text presents us with the sort of like moral dilemma type questions. And sometimes you, there's even like games people play where they like throw out these crazy moral dilemmas and you just have to talk through it. Like um, the, the whole question of like stealing bread when, when somebody's starving. Like is that an ethical thing? Like is that the right thing to do? It's the Jean Valjean kind of question. Or um, like say, this is much more practical for us. We live in Atlanta. Say you're, you parked your car and right next to your car is just a beater of a car. It's already dented up. It looks pretty jacked up. But you open your door a little too fast and you add to the collection of dings in this car. What do you do? Do you leave a note? Do you just kind of move on being like, well, it's not, what's one more ding out of a thousand dings uh, in that car? What do you, what do, you do? Or uh, you want to sell your car. And you know there's something kind of going wrong with it, but you don't exactly know what it is. And it still kind of runs. Do you disclose that a piece of information when the car still runs? Or maybe you have a friend that has a new business and, man, they're, they're starting to have some really great returns and they ask you to invest in it. But you feel like there's a little bit of shadiness in what they're doing. What do you do? Do you get involved? These are great moral questions. They're, they're moral dilemma questions to uh, step into. And the Sabbath was one of these subjects for the Jewish people that was like always debated. And hear me, it's a very central part of the Old Testament. It comes up time and time and time again. And even one of the things that happened as part of their going to captivity was like a struggle with obeying the Sabbath. But how do you interpret the command? Because there's only so many commands about it. Do not work on the Sabbath. What's work? What does work look like? If I mow my yard on the Sabbath, is that work or not? And they end up creating, it's room to create a lot of rules of going, okay, here's what work is and here's what work, work is not, right? Like soon after Jesus' time, they eventually canonize a lot of these oral rules and add about 6,000 rules into the mix on top of the 613 the Torah already has. It's just a selection of how to live this out, the halakha, how to live out obedience to what God has actually called us to do. And some of these are still in play today. I mean, I grew up uh, with a lot of um, more Orthodox Jewish friends. Uh, they used to invite me over on a Friday night because I could turn the lights on and off, and they couldn't. Uh, and so uh, I was allowed to do certain things, and they weren't allowed to do. And so um, they, they would have all these rules and, and kind of work around them in particular ways. Or last summer, we got to visit my family and I to, to Israel, and we kind of planned Friday night into Saturday a certain way because we knew shops and restaurants and store, nothing was going to be open. And so we're like, we're making that a beach day because that we can do. Of course, we didn't realize that everyone in Israel also makes that a beach day. Uh, but um, we did that. Or uh, I, you probably don't even know about this unique feature. Uh, so uh, in Manhattan, uh, there is a fishing wire that runs around most of the city, most of the island. And... Um, it is this set-apart area called an aruv. Uh, it's, it's considered uh, uh, sacredly residential uh, as opposed to commercial. And so um, as long as you were within the sacred residential areas, you could do certain amounts of work as an Orthodox Jew. You can carry your baby and stuff like that. But as soon as you leave the wire, you're in commercial areas and you're not allowed to do stuff like that. And so they have these rules. And so that fishing wire still exists. Whenever the Thanksgiving Day break comes along, they have to take it all down and then put it all back up immediately. Um, but um, it's this weird little fishing wire that runs around the city of Manhattan. And so the Orthodox temples came together and set these rules, set them out. And hear me, the heart of it is obedience. They, they say, we want to be obedient as best we can to Torah. It's our gift back to God to be obedient. And so um, we shouldn't always look at, oh, it's just legalism. Like, there's, there's an intense desire 
to obey what God has commanded. Now, is that the best interpretation of how to obey? That's a wonderful question. I think that's the question on the table for the Pharisees and Jesus here. And I think Jesus is going to go reframe an understanding of the law for them in a way that focuses on mercy and a way that focuses on life. So let's look at that first. Uh, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, are they? Are they doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Um, we, we know by the law that they're actually not stealing. Um, uh, Deuteronomy 23 actually says, When you pass through somebody's field, you are allowed to take some grapes, take some grains. You're not allowed to put them in a bag. You have to eat them in, in the presence of the field as you walk through, but you were allowed to. It's actually a, a way to provide for those that have no means or to hungry. And so they weren't stealing on the Sabbath, so that's not a problem. The question is, is what they are doing considered work, considered harvesting on the Sabbath? That was the question at hand. And, and so uh, that's, that's the problem that they're wrestling with. Now, to take a step back, what is the purpose of the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath for? This is a congregational question. What are some of the things that Sabbath is for? Because we get a few principles, I think, in the Old Testament. Rest. And I heard worship in there, too. Yeah, sort of like it's sacred time. It is time that is set apart for God. There is some devotional side of what it is. It is rest, like literally physical rest as well, no work. What else? What was that? Sure, there's, there's definitely a connection, a communal connection of what Sabbath is. Um, I think even some of that goes back to the garden. It's, it's remembering the garden that we are created as humanity. And, and, and the initial start is that we are good, and that's a good thing. Um, and the end game of, of the storyline. What else? Worship? Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. The sacredness of that time. I think there's some things um, around uh, trust and provision. Uh, so um, do, do, we, do we believe that God, us working six days a week is enough uh, and that God will continue to provide for us, even making sure we work a little extra on Friday to make sure we get everything done for Saturday? Um, and I think, I think there's even questions of mercy and justice tied into Sabbath. Like if you had um, a servant or someone like that, they had to take the day off too. It wasn't just like the owners got to take day off um, or, or their, their farm animals or your land. It all took a rest day as well. So you had this this day set apart. And it was, a, it was a big deal, the Shabbat day. And I think Jesus is confronting these Pharisees and essentially saying, look, if you're, if you're worried about my disciples rolling some grain in their fingers and eating it, I think you're missing the point of what Shabbat is actually about, what Sabbath is actually about. And a way to highlight how Jesus interprets the law versus how the Pharisees, which is getting to the question around, like, why not just say use a bad interpretation? Because I think Jesus is going to give them a principle of which to view the law through. So where does Jesus go? He says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests, which once again, have you not read? It's just a funny dig. Um, but he's referencing a very specific Old Testament story here. And, and um, I think even Jesus is connecting it. There's a story of a king that not a lot of people understood was the king. And uh, he was traveling around with a bunch of men, and uh, they were all really hungry. And so that's very much what Jesus is doing. But, but it's a story from David's life. And David, at this time, 
had been anointed king uh, by Samuel, and, uh, but Saul was still the king on the throne. So David's sort of the would-be king, Saul's still re- actually in charge, and Saul's not so happy about this anointment of David and really wants to kill David, um, as you would if you were the current king on the throne. And, uh, and so Saul's chasing David all over the country at this moment. And then uh, this story comes out of 1 Samuel 21. Uh, and so David came to Nob, Uh, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of this matter from which I send you and with which I have charged you. By the way, I hope we're really okay with some of the gray moments in scripture. Because David just lied to this priest's face, right? He's like, oh yeah, the king sent me on this, and we're not supposed to talk about it. That's, like, that's all that David said. Now, he could be stretching the truth, being like, well, God the king sent him, or, but David knows the priest thinks it's Saul, right? He's not, he's not a dummy. And so this is what David says to him. I have made an appointment with the young men for such as such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread and whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but that uh, here there, there is some holy bread if your young men have kept themselves from women. So the priests are like, uh, the priest is like, look, I know you need bread. I know you're on a mission from the king. I know you have this need. All I have is a special consecrated bread. Now, it's important to know what that bread is. So uh, inside the tabernacle, uh, you had just a couple of pieces of furniture. You had a lamp, you had a table, you had a, a little incense altar. And the table is the table for the bread. It's a bread of presence. And there are 12 loaves that would sit on this table. They were to represent all 12 tribes. Um, it was sort of this picture of the 12 tribes sort of dining with God presently. Uh, sort of this picture of fellowship uh, with God. And so you had these 12 pieces of bread. Now, according to Levitical law, only the priest is allowed to eat that bread uh, when they are done with it. And so it's special bread, holy bread, consecrated, set apart bread. So what does the priest say? Well, David speaks first. He says, uh, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition for some reason. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? And so David's, I think the priest is like, well, you at least need some cleanliness here. Are, are you clean? And David's essentially like, yes, my, me and my men are clean. So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. And so the priest, in this moment, gives David the bread. Now it's important to remember what a priest is for, what the, what the purpose of a priest is. Um, they have multiple jobs. They are to represent uh, a God to the people. So they are to communicate what God is like. They are to represent the people back to God. So they help them understand like what atonement is, what, what coming, returning to God, the oneness with God is. And to care for people's needs. So the priests actually were in charge of, as part of their collections of various things from the people, to distribute those goods to those in need. That was part of of the priestly system. And and so there were all those things. So let's be real. When David eats this bread, he is breaking a command in the law, right? It, It is clear the priests are the only ones to eat this bread, and yet this is what's happening in the moment. They're giving it to David. But I think the priest here is making a decision. As if to say, look, if I understand the God that dwells in this tabernacle and in this tent, his instruction about keeping the bread holy is, is not necessarily the, the main thing. 
Like the whole reason we have holy bread is to teach us about who the kind of God we have is. And this God would feed the hungry first. Therefore, a hungry person is more important than consecrating and keeping this bread consecrated. And so the priest, weighing in on these things, gives the bread to David. He is making an interpretation of the law because he has two conflicting laws and he has to make a call in this moment of what the law truly desires. And I think this is a story that Jesus uses to highlight for the priests of how, or to the Pharisee of how to interpret the law. Now hear me. Does anything in the David story have anything to do with Sabbath? No. There's, there's nothing. It's not part of the storyline of Shabbat, what day of the week. We, we know nothing. Yet, I think Jesus is using this story to go, I need you to understand the principle of how to interpret the law well. And it brings this up. And then he keeps going to one that does have to do with Sabbath. Or have you not read the law, how the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And so you had priests that had to work on the Sabbath, right? Numbers 28, on the Sabbath day, two male lambs a year old without blemish and two tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil and its drink offering. This is the burnt offering of every Sabbath besides a regular burnt offering and its drinks offerings. And so you had a command that there had to be priests that would actually have to do this work every Sabbath. So yes, we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but every Sabbath someone has to work. And, and there's priests to do it. And to do it for the sake of the people. This is for the good and, and the cleanliness of Israel for them to continue to do that. That's their whole job. And once again, the priests are to help people understand who God is and what God desires. And I think, once again, Jesus is bringing it up to the Pharisee of going, look, you're misunderstanding what the Torah is actually after. And your rules and your fences, and your fences are only good if they actually help you love people, if they actually help you care for hungry people, if they actually help you engage in this. If not, if they hurt people, if they leave people hungry, then your laws are problematic. And I think he's starting to bring that up by their principles. And he says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which he just said like two chapters ago uh, when he was sitting and eating with sinners and the Pharisees had a big problem with him. Uh, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. You would not have condemned my, my disciples. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And, and so, yeah, remember this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Because I think he's pointing to the telos, like the end game, the, the purpose of the law, which is around things like mercy, not sacrifice. If it's about sacrifice, you've missed the point, Pharisees. What I desire is mercy. And what the Torah is after, what the prophets speak to, are, are creating a people to himself. Like that's what the law was partly given for, so that God would have his people to create a unique people, a people set apart, a people different from the nations, and to bless the nations, a nation of priests, right? That's what they're called in the beginning of, right when they get to Sinai, that they would be a nation of priests, the people that would represent the God of the universe to the rest of the nations. And central to that, according to Jesus, is mercy. And therefore, the laws are given with the end game of mercy, not sacrifice. So then he says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, or Shabbat. Now, there are a couple ways to go with this line. Um, and uh, if you go in the Old Testament, the Son of Man phrase has a lot of different usages. 
Uh, if you're in the book of Daniel, it is this prophetic figure that comes to the Ancient of Days. It, it, it was a bit mysterious. And there are times where Jesus picks it up that way. There are times, as I said a couple months ago, that Jesus picks it up around sort of the son of Abel and this expectation of vengeance. But there's also times in the Old Testament where it is used simply to talk about humans and humanity, right? Uh, like Psalm 8. <clears throat> what is mankind? What is Enosh? That you are mindful of him. Or human beings, or Ben Adam, son of man, that you care for him, them. Or uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel will have this interaction with God, and God will speak to Ezekiel. And, and God will basically say, like, as a reminder, Ezekiel, you are just a human. I'm going to show you this fanciful thing, but you are human. He says, son of man, Ben Adam, stand up on your feet, and I will speak to you. Now, the question is, which one is it here? And it could be, sure. I mean, if Jesus is really Lord of Lords, then yes, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. But we hear in other gospel writers a little bit more of the dialogue here. And uh, Jesus will say things like, um, man wasn't created for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. Like, you weren't created to just obey this overarching principle. No, this thing was given as a gift for you. So I would actually argue, I think what Jesus is saying here is that humanity, son of man, people, like, we, as Sabbath as gift... It's not something we serve as a sacrifice. It's something that's given to us to, to, as, as the gift to, to, to utilize for, for the good of worshiping God and loving people. Now, I could be wrong. I'm cool with that. I, I just think in this context that probably makes a little more sense rather than Jesus being super cryptic and I'm not understanding exactly what he's saying. Um, it still would have been provocative because they would have understood Sabbath much more as obedience than um, gift. But anyways... I think the drive here for the Pharisees is Jesus, as if he's saying, look, if you correctly understand what Shabbat Sabbath is for, the gift that it is, if you knew that God desires mercy, loving others' life, then you would have had no problem with what my disciples did. But you're, you don't understand really what God is after. And then he keeps moving uh, with these analogies. He says he went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him? So I'm sure they're like, fine. Uh, if the Sabbath's really about people, let's set up Jesus. Let's make sure this guy with a withered hand is there because he probably sh- shouldn't have been in the synagogue at the time uh, because of uncleanliness. But they've set him up and they're like, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to heal? Because healing is considered a creative work and it was something that also, according to the Pharisees, was not allowed. <clears throat> Verse 11, he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep and it falls into a pit on Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to be, do good on the Sabbath. Now, as I said earlier, I think Jesus enters into an ongoing rabbinical debate. And no surprise, there's kind of a two-party system going on in Israel at the time. You had a more conservative-leaning crowd, you had a more liberal-leaning crowd with different interpretations about how it goes. In the generation just prior to Jesus, there were two big, big dog rabbis. Uh, one was Hillel, uh, whose name still, ex- I think our Jewish center at one of my universities was called the Hillel Center, um, and uh, Shammai. Uh, and they took different lenses to interpret scripture, different yokes, as we talked about last week. Shammai uh, is much more conservative. Uh, his, his first statement, uh, most of these debates, they would, they would have that conversation of what is the greatest commandment. So when Jesus is asked that, it's not an abnormal question. They would say, what is the greatest commandment? And the rabbis would all go, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Cool. Everybody would tend to agree on that. And then the second command was always sort of like, and here's the principle I use to interpret all the pieces of it. 
And so uh, Shammai would say, love the Lord your God and obey the Sabbath. He was a big obedience guy. He was like, you, you better obey the laws. Like, that is what we are called to be as God's people, the people of obedience. And Hillel came around with a very different thing. And he said, um, uh, that which is hateful unto you, do not do to your neighbor. And Hillel couched it with the Levitical law of love, the, love your neighbor as yourself. And so um, Hillel actually had a much more Jesus-y, well, I guess Jesus had a, a little more Hillelish uh, answer uh, in some of the ways that he uh, answers some of those questions. I think Jesus goes further than Hillel in a lot of ways. But I think even in those debates around the greatest commandment, I think Jesus' answer is like, look, when I look at the scriptures, the first principle, the, the weightiest principle is, is a lens of love. How do I love my neighbor? That's the first step of interpretation. And I think that's going on here. It's the weightiness of the law, that the question of what, what is heavier. Where two commandments come into conflict with each other, how do we make a decision, right? It's the question of, like, the Holocaust. You're housing Jews in your basement, and the SS shows up to your door. What do I do? Do I lie to the SS, or do I preserve life? Well, I guess, do I lie and preserve life, or do I speak the truth to the SS? That's, what are, what's the decision there? And I don't think it's a question. I think sometimes we get, we read the word law and immediately think of our legal system. And I don't think it's a question of actually breaking a command, but the question of fulfilling the right command. I think that's what Jesus is, is really framing for them. That when we fulfill the right command, we're not actually breaking any command. We are fulfilling the Torah. We are fulfilling God's design for us. We see this in Scripture. We see this in the midwives in Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh speaks to the Jewish midwives, say, hey, you need to kill all the firstborn kids. And the midwives are like, well, these Jewish women are having babies way too fast for us. And hear me, they are lying to the Pharaoh to the most powerful person in the country in order to bring life. Or Rahab does the same thing when she's housing the spies and she ultimately lies to provide life. You have these moments. It's like, which do I obey? Bearing, not bearing false witness or life and mercy and those sort of decisions. Flourishing. And one of those places where it really came out were these debates about animals, <laughs> of how to apply the yokes. And so you had um, different instructions. Deuteronomy 22. You shall not see your neighbor's donkey or ox or livestock fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall lift him to help him to lift them up again. But also Leviticus 23. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day, no work. You shall not work. Which do you obey? You've been commanded to help your friend if an animal falls in the pit. You've been commanded not to work. Hear me. If, an animal, if, a, if there's a sheep or a donkey in a pit... It's going to be work to get a farm animal out of a hole, right? You're going to need some kind of pulley system. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to extrain, ex, extrain, strain yourself to get this animal out of the hole. So it's going to be work. So what do you do? Now, weirdly enough, both rabbis actually ended up agreeing for different reasons on the fact that you should get the animal out of the pit. And so Jesus' response is, look, you guys already know, you've already had these debates. You know that even on Sabbath, the life of an animal matters. You already know you're supposed to get him out of the pit. How much more is a human life than that? Is really all he's simply saying. You've already settled this matter, and you think a human life isn't even more important than this animal life? 
And Jesus takes this whole question of, is it lawful? And he doesn't give the answer of yes and no, because that's what they're asking for. But he's saying what's lawful to do on a Sabbath is to do good. And he reframes it for them around goodness. And hear me, in the other gospel writers, it actually says Jesus gets righteously angry in this moment. Because he's watched these Pharisees just time and time again just utilize the law in such terrible ways. That, that it's not just healing, but like this is what Sabbath is for, to remind us of goodness. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. And so Jesus, through this healing on Shabbat, has showcased the law's intended purposes, which I said was mercy, but I think it's also life. This is the end game. And Jesus, who didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, he's, he's showcasing every, what it means to be truly human, obedient to God, is showcased in Jesus. And this is what we see. We see him step out and bring life. And hear me, I don't think, and there are interpreters that will disagree with me, I don't think Jesus ever violated Torah in his whole life. I think when he says, I came to fulfill it, he was not violating Torah. I think he's violating Pharisaic laws that get added and interpretations. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's improper sometimes when we say, like, Jesus knew when to break the law. I'm like, no, that, that would be conflicting what he actually said he came to do. And so he came for life, to restoration. And he takes the law that for some is just bringing death, but through him and through his spirit is life and the right way to see it. And the Pharisees went out, expired against him, and how to destroy him. Um, or some translations say how to kill him, which is a really goofy choice. Um, the word there has all sorts of different possibilities. And I think the Pharisees particularly were setting out to like just ruin his reputation, end his ministry, all that kind of stuff. Now let's get to this last section. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I had chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is an interesting section. It was kind of hard to figure out whether to put this this week or move it to next week. It kind of fits both in some ways. Um, it is our first peak in Matthew. Matthew hasn't talked a ton about the Gentiles. We've had moments, but this is one of the first, and maybe coming off the heels of Jesus really being angry with the Pharisees, to be like, yes, and Jesus was truly a light to the rest of the nations, um, and starting to hit down that road. But I think Matthew introduces this text here um, in the middle of these stories because he's going to be fighting quite a bit with the Pharisees and he's about to go into some more fights with the religious leadership and the Pharisees. And right here in the middle, I think Matthew's reminding us that like Jesus has all these quarrels, but that was not why he was here. He wasn't here to promote his ministry in this massive public way on the streets. He wasn't here to get into these philosophical debates with all the religious leadership. That wasn't his main goal. He, he ticked them off and it happened, but that wasn't why he was here. And, and he would sneak away and he would keep healing. And he would keep bringing shalom. And he would keep doing his kingdom work. He, he wouldn't be out in the streets making sure everybody heard him. And he did it with gentleness and humility. Like a bruised, like he wouldn't even break a bruised reed in the midst of this. And I think it's just a reminder from Matthew that although Jesus had these interactions, his ministry was nothing like theirs. The Pharisees were performative and Jesus was transformative. 
Theirs brought isolation, and Jesus brought inclusion. Theirs brought rejection, and Jesus brought healing. Theirs was abolishing the law, and Jesus was fulfilling the law. Theirs brought shackles, and Jesus brought freedom. Theirs brought condemnation, and Jesus brought mercy. Now, these stories do feel culturally removed. Most of us aren't having debates around animals falling in pits or whether we can grab grains as we walk through fields. They're just not what most of us are doing, though we do have community gardens a lot of our neighborhoods nowadays. Um, But I think there's a lot of still practical pieces to this. Um, And one is around how we navigate reading God's word. And the number two is what kind of community is God actually forming for his people? And the first, um, I think we all have to realize we bring interpretive lenses to scripture. Like all of us do. And if you say you don't, I would really worry about you. Um, we, we bring interpretive lenses to the text. That's what we do. And Jesus has just challenged the Pharisees' sort of really strict literalism to the letter of the law uh, around how they are reading things. And he gives a lens that is of mercy and healing and life in the face of theirs. Now, how does this apply to interpretation? I think there's times where we get to less agreed upon pieces of scripture and we have to ask, what is the thing of mercy and healing in life and how we interpret this? How does, how does our interpretation help us love our neighbor well? And we see this. We see Paul do this, right? Paul's dealing with the church and some feel like they have a total freedom to eat whatever food they want. They don't think idols are real. There's no real demonic power to them. We just get to do what we want. And then others who are like, no, 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 like, we shouldn't be doing that. And Paul's deferral is, hey, like, you should care about the other's position and be willing to lay down your own freedoms for the sake of the other person, right? If you think Halloween is satanic and some of you think Halloween is just fun, okay, defer to somebody else in terms of some of your convictions. If it causes somebody else to stumble, be willing to not think of yourself. Or we see things like uh, the woman caught in adultery in the story. There's lack of a another person who, I don't know how you commit adultery without another person who committed adultery with you, um, and a lack of sufficient witnesses in that moment. So what do they do? What does Jesus do in that moment? He defaults to mercy in life, in love of neighbor. Or uh, all the debates around marriage that exist in Scripture because of infidelity or abandonment, all these things that destroy marriage, and the way that particularly men would misuse a certificate of divorce and marginalize women constantly. And Jesus takes a position that says, no, the merciful, the healing thing to do, the protection thing to do is the dignity of marriage. And there's so many ways this plays out. Like when we enter the voting booth, do we enter with a lens of mercy and love? Do we ask, how do I best love my neighbor with my vote? Or do we just go, how, do, how does this help me, right? What laws would show more mercy and healing that are about life? Now, that should challenge a lot of different places. Maybe that challenge, maybe you're pro-abortion, that challenges it. Maybe you're pro-capital punishment, that challenges you. And there's a lot of ways that this can challenge. Or questions that we still have. When there's physical or emotional abuse in marriage, is that grounds for divorce? Well, what does mercy say in that? When there's possible violent threat against someone, like, does that justify violence back? Or preemptive violence, like that countries like to do all the time? What about scripture is unclear on things like baptism, or women in ministry, or gender roles, or leadership structures, or essential doctrines versus opinions? 
Jesus' teaching should cause us to navigate those with the lens of mercy and healing and love. So will we become also a people of mercy and life and healing and love? It's been quite a refrain throughout Matthew. Like, I feel like he's beating the dead horse around this, this, this idea. As if he's talking to a lot of um, a Jewish audience who have a very certain way of seeing the Torah. And Jesus is like, or Matthew's like, no, I need to tell you how Jesus is different. And he still speaks about the law, but he speaks about it in ways that really seem to fulfill it. That the law was never the problem. It was always how we utilize the law. I would argue that's actually what Paul's after in, in the book of Romans quite a bit, is how, how the abuse of the law is really how sin really plays out in the world. That the law with the spirit can transform, and the law with sin can deform. It reminds me quite a bit of a scene, this is going to be a weird reference, um, a Mandy Moore movie, uh, that uh, was called Saved. Uh, it was quite a scathing uh, rebuke against the conservative Christian church. Uh, some of it very founded, and some of it probably over, overstating his case, but um, Mandy Moore is this super conservative high schooler, um, and uh, kind of the, the quintessential judgmental picture of Christianity, and um, decides to have this sort of um, intervention for one of their friends that they consider backsliding and everything else. And uh, they kidnap her and throw her in a van. Eventually her friend gets out, and um, her, her friend's sort of walking away, and her friend's like, you don't understand the love of God uh, or the love of Christ. And then at that moment, many more taking her Bible, throws it at the girl and says, I am filled with the love of Christ, and hits her in the back. And the friend turns around and agrees that she does not understand love. And and she says, and she picks up the Bible and says, this is not a weapon. And it's such a poignant woman. Um, And it's so true of so much of how the church operates and how much the church uses it and weaponizes the Bible. And sometimes to do things like judge one lifestyle in a certain way, yet overlook all these other sinful lifestyles that may not offend us as much. Or ways that husbands overstate or manipulate their wives using a verse around submission to get there. Or abusive church leadership utilizing it to shut down any critique or challenge to their decisions. When it's used to uphold an unjust patriarchy, when it's used to defend slavery in history, when it's used for politically invoked religious principles to gain support, claiming divine endorsement of their policies and positions, when cherry-picked verses that support a preset position, yet they don't consider the breadth and variety of scripture on a given topic, when people employ the Bible to make others feel spiritually inadequate or guilty, about their beliefs and actions, even that they're sincerely trying to live out their faith. Using passages about divine judgment or consequences to manipulate or to control individuals. Using doctrinal differences within Christianity to exclude, criticize, and undermine others who hold differing theological beliefs. Man, I I see that way more than I want to. Failing to emphasize with the struggles and experiences with others. Dismissing their concerns with simplistic and judgmental biblical responses. Asserting that only individuals who adhere to a particular set of beliefs will be saved and have access to God's grace, excluding others based upon the faith journey. And and hear me. The Pharisees did it, and we still do it. And we take the law, 
We take what God desires, and we look through it through a certain lens and use it to just beat people, to just wreak havoc. Either the law with the Spirit transforms us or not, or with sin deforms us. And will we let it transform us into the people of mercy and love and life that Jesus creates through his life, death, and resurrection? Now, it's a lot of talk about law today. And I want to be clear. The starting point to everything is, is grace, right? Like, we don't love others and our neighbors as a starting point. We love because Jesus loved us first. And I always want to be clear on that. But we're redeemed to go be a new people. Israel was redeemed from Egypt to go be a new people. And the same still holds true to us. We don't do it because we're just trying to make God happy. That is, God is satisfied by the work of his son. But he calls us into a new life, but it's because he was that first. We have to connect it always to the personal work of Jesus. He is love, and he is merciful, and he is life, and he is healer. So his people should be. He is all those things through his death and resurrection. He showcases love that he would lay out his life for his friends. He is merciful that he would stand on the cross and say, Father, have forgiveness on them. They don't know what they're doing. He is life because he is the resurrection and the life and came back from the dead. And he is the healer who invites us now by the power of the Spirit to heal our sin-sick souls. He is all those things. And then we imitate Christ and become all those things. We don't become judgment because he didn't come. He didn't come to condemn this world. And so we don't. And so will we step into the kind of people and the readers of the Bible that Jesus desires his people to be? It may push us to be real. It may cause us to rethink some things. There are Pharisees that had to rethink a lot of positions, and some of them did. Some of them are around at the beginning of the story in John and are there at the crucifixion in the end. We see Pharisees in the early church in Acts. We see some that go, you know what? I was wrong. That is life. And may we repent and step into the way of Jesus and not the way of the Pharisees.